Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Definitely there was some pressure. If I look back and in hindsight, at a young age, there was this pressure for me to look like a doll or me to be perfect or me to be pleasing. And I don't have a daughter, I have two boys, but if I did have a daughter, I would probably not do that. I would probably make sure, I would be very, very careful not to, especially nowadays with social media and what's with, with what's going on out there, it's absolutely insane. But I would definitely make sure to really walk lightly around the whole beauty thing, because it can be quite, it is, it is, it's not can be, it, it is very, it's damaging, especially when you're growing up and you're learning about yourself as a young girl. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them? How they got through? And how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. 
Hey, beautiful souls. Are you a perfectionist? Have you spent your entire life trying to ensure everything is absolutely perfect, that everything is completely under control? As a recovering perfectionist myself, I know that this drive for everything to be faultless, flawless, comes from believing your self-worth is based on what you can achieve. If you do all the things and you do them amazingly, then you're worthy, you're winning, right? You might not even consciously think this way. It just becomes a part of your DNA. To feel good, I must achieve. To feel good, I must show the world that I'm worthy. Perfectionism is a response to childhood trauma, to feeling less than, to being told or feeling that you're not good enough and never being seen or being heard. Feeling unloved and this is exactly the story I'm sharing with you this week as a young girl Lauren felt a huge amount of pressure to look pleasing to those around her she describes it as I needed to look perfect almost like a doll and being heavily involved in acting the pressure in that industry was all around looks and weight and fitting the exact mold to make it to the next level to get that next part And by her 20s, life was spiralling for Lauren. And through anxiety and panic, she continued running towards the dream to be a successful actress and live her perfect life. Lauren takes us on a journey through her years of learning and healing. And there is so much truth being shared. So please join me in hearing Lauren's story. Lauren, We connected on Instagram where you're sharing your healing journey through anxiety, depression and some chronic health issues and I've loved following you and hearing what you have to say because it's raw and real and it definitely all resonates with me. First up, can you share a little bit about what growing up was like for you? Well, yeah, sure. So, you know, my my childhood was generally, I had a very blessed childhood. Um, I grew up in an upper middle class family in Toronto my parents were together. I had an older brother. We lived in a beautiful home. I had a pool in the backyard. This is my second house. I was very lucky in many ways. I got, you know, everything that I wanted in terms of material things like clothes and shoes and party dresses. And um, I had lots of friends and I went to camp in the summer. In the winters, my parents got a chalet in Collingwood uh, which and we were skiers. I learned how to ski when I was very little, and every weekend we would go up north skiing. And I just adored being in the country because I spent so much time there. Whether it was in the winter, I'd go up north skiing every weekend, and in the summer I would go up to north to uh, Halliburton, and I would go to camp. I went to Camp White Pine um, and spend my summers for two months. I would be away from home and just be with my friends in a cabin just in the sunshine, doing activities, having fun. So really in many ways, I had a very blessed, a blessed childhood. Um, very lucky. And a lot of really, I made a lot of really good friends um, growing up. So the, yeah, that, that's up to about, you know, 13 or 14. When things started to shift for me, um, it was basically around 13, 14. My parents, we had to move out of the house that I 
that I adored where I was close to all my friends and I could literally just like walk to their houses and hang out and stuff. And we didn't move that far. It wasn't like this traumatic move where we left the city and went somewhere else. We just moved like, I don't know, you know, 20 minutes or so out of the area of where my friends were. But it was at the time, it was a little jarring for me because I was so used to being able to just like be next to my friends and just be around them and stuff and hang out. So that was sort of like the first uh, wave of sadness that I felt. I felt lonely and where we moved, it wasn't, um, it wasn't our home. We were renting and my dad had to put money back into the business. Uh, his, we had a family business. So I could feel a sense of a little bit of unhappiness in my mother just having to move. And it was stressful for her to make this change, this lifestyle change. And we moved to this weird kind of, it was, it was interesting. It was called the behind, it was behind the bridal path. And the bridal path, if you know Toronto, is the wealthiest area in Toronto where these huge, huge mansions are. Of course, we didn't live in one of those. We, we moved to a house behind the bridal path, which was also a nice area. Very like the homes were very nice. They just weren't huge mansions. But it was so weird because you had to drive down this long, long street to get to the back end where we moved to. And where we moved to was kind of like, I kind of felt like I was in prison because you couldn't get out of that area unless you went back through those long streets. Those where all those big, huge mansions were to get out back onto a main street to go see my friends. Basically, it was just this, I was kind of at the back end of this very, very rich area where I didn't know anybody. And I was in this house with my brother and my mom and dad, and I didn't have a pet. And I was just sort of, we, our backyard looked onto a ravine and I was just sort of out of, I was out of my, my comfort zone. I wasn't in my comfort area where my friends were. And at that time, when you're a girl and you're 13, 14, and you're hanging out with a certain type of crowd, which I was hanging out with, you know, if you weren't sort of next door and in the clique, so to speak, you were kind of outcasted. And at around that time, I started sort of dieting. And that was sort of at the time where people, girls were watching what they were eating. And I, I guess in a way, in a way to sort of control um, my external world, I couldn't. So I, I did something, I started sort of dieting. I wasn't full-blown anorexic or bulimic or anything like that but I definitely started losing weight and I noticed it and people started noticing it and some of the girls that I was friends with at that time noticed it and kind of outcasted me a little bit and left me out and didn't really want to be friends with me anymore and I at the time it was traumatizing it was it was I was scared I was I didn't understand what was happening. All of a sudden I'm living in this weird area and I'm losing my friends. And I think that was like the first time that I started to feel feelings of anxiety, uh, feelings of depression and just feeling lonely and not, you know, didn't really understand. I couldn't, I really didn't feel like I had anyone I could really connect to. Um, My dad was always working, you know, he'd come home, he was tired, he'd eat dinner with us, but even though I was closest to my dad and my biological family, I didn't really, he couldn't really relate. And I couldn't really, there wasn't really much I could say to him about it. And my brother was off doing his own thing with his buddies and he didn't seem to be as affected by the move as I was. Maybe he just was more resilient than me when it came to those kinds of things. I don't know what it was, but he didn't seem as affected. I don't know. My mom was kind of, I, I, I didn't really know what to say to my mom. I felt like she was already under stress. So I didn't really want to burden her too much. So and I didn't want to upset her and I didn't want to upset my dad. And I just sort of kind of, I guess I just internalized it. And yeah, I don't know. It was, it was an interesting time. Yeah. So up, up until about 13, 14, I would say 
things were pretty, pretty good. And then that's when I noticed the first, those first feelings kind of came around. Yeah. Like I, I tried yeah. to, you know, use my body as a way of con- to control. Yeah. It's interesting what we do, isn't it? To take control of our life back, I guess. So you weren't really able to talk to your parents about what was happening at all? Well, you know, I didn't even really feel like there was much to talk about. Like there wasn't anything we could do. We'd moved. We weren't moving again. We were staying there. I knew that. And it's funny, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, there was a time before that. And I'll mention it because it's interesting. When I was about 10 years old, my, I don't remember this. I remember a little bit, but my mom told me years later and my dad, my mom basically told me that I had these tantrums when I was about nine or 10, where I would just be so distraught and so upset with myself and I would tell my mom I'm ugly I'm ugly there's something wrong with me I look ugly and she was nervous because she has a nervous nature and she was scared so she sent me to a psychiatrist at the time who I ended up seeing years later when I had another traumatic event in my life when I was around 20 but anyways she took me to psychiatrist and I was put on something as some kind of medication I don't know what it was I was I think on it maybe for a year maybe less Maybe it was something to control the mood swings. I don't know. But I guess it was so uncomfortable and it was so frightening for my for my parents at the time. They didn't know how to deal with it. So they sent me to a psychiatrist and I was put on medication. Now, do I agree with that decision that they made to do that, um, to sort of medicalize maybe just my feelings? Maybe I was just an emotional girl. I kind of feel like that's just the way I am now when I look back in hindsight. But at the time, they just didn't have the tools to, to handle it. So actually maybe it wasn't 13 or 14, it was maybe nine or 10, where I had that first kind of like, something's wrong with me. And I don't like what I see in the mirror. And then the next time was, was around 13, 14, around 14, I would say. It sounds like your mum is quite an anxious person herself. So do you think that that anxiety that you were getting was coming from your mum? Possibly. It's very possible. I mean, you know, as women, we tend to internalize things whereas men deflect and (laughs) women tend to I've just known this through reading a lot of reading and a lot of self-study and reflection that you know looking back on my life now that I'm older I feel like I did in some cases in some instances and maybe not in others but that I I probably internalized a lot of my mother's anxieties and fears and even though they weren't my own they became my own through just conditioning And so, yeah, it's very possible. My mother was very, and still is, I mean, but she was a model when she was younger and she was extremely beautiful, like just absolutely beautiful. Blonde, long hair, beautiful blue eyes. She met my dad, she was 10 years younger than my dad. And she, yeah, my mom, it's hard to explain, but as a young girl, I guess beauty you could say beauty was something that I, I saw all around me. I mean, my mother was absolutely beautiful. Her friends were beautiful and glamorous and more beautiful makeup and had their hair done. It was the 80s. So they had the big hair and the fancy sunglasses, like out of an 80s movie, Miami Vice or whatever. And, you know, they'd go to Aspen and take ski trips every year. And I just adored them. I totally look up to, looked up to them. And I, I just, you know, like that was my, you know, when I looked at women, you know, or a lifestyle of like what it is when you get older and you get married, you know, you're, you're beautiful. You're going to meet a nice Jewish guy. I'm Jewish, by the way. So if you, in case you didn't know. And uh, you're going to meet a nice Jewish guy and he's going to take care of you and you're going to live this beautiful life and you're going to be a princess and you're going to get to get all these nice things. And, and so I guess in a way, beauty was ingrained in me as like a key to 
success. It was your beauty was your open door. It was your, it was your meal ticket. So yeah, I guess maybe there was a part of me that looked at my mom and didn't feel like I was pretty enough. I was a redhead with freckles. A lot of my friends were darker haired, darker skin, and I would go to camp and I would just maybe feel a little bit kind of like a fish out of water, like just different. I just felt different. I think a lot of redheads have this kind of different feeling where they just don't fit in. And so, you know, I think maybe that's a little bit where it came from. I also was put into modeling when I was around 10. And I remember I was put in with a, my mom had a good friend and her daughter also went into modeling with me. And she was, she had brown hair and brown eyes. And she sort of looked like, you know, she was very skinny and she looked like the, a model, like a bait, like a young model. And maybe I was also compared to her and didn't feel like I measured up. I don't know what it was, but definitely there was some pressure. If I look back and in hindsight, at a young age, there was this pressure for me to look like a doll or me to be perfect or me to be pleasing. And yeah, that if I, if I don't have a daughter, I have two boys, but if I did have a daughter, I would probably not do that. <laughs> I would probably make sure I would be very, very careful not to, especially nowadays with social media and what's with, with what's going on out there. It's absolutely insane. But I would definitely make sure to be really, really walk, walk lightly around the whole beauty thing, because it can be quite, it is, it is, it's not can be, it, it is damaging, especially when you're growing up and you're learning about yourself as a young girl. And when you're told that basically your meal ticket is your looks and that's it. After that, it's all, you know, whatever else, nothing else really matters. That that's not a good message you want to send to a young girl. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. It's it's oh, when when you look at Instagram and you look at all the social media and there's just images of people trying to look like this perfect human and it, it, for little yeah. little kids and little girls, especially You've got to wonder what goes on in their brains and yeah, it's kind of scary. I can't even imagine. It's scary. Yeah. I mean, like I felt so self-conscious uh, with no social media and no, you know, I can't even imagine, uh, for example, like a 15 year old or a 14 year old girl, you know, going on Instagram, posting a picture and then, you know, these little meanies, mean girls, you know, cause I know them, I grew up with them. Some of them writing something like, why does your chin look so big? I mean, like that's, I, that's horrific. That's just like traumatizing in and of itself. Yeah. Absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. So bad. I can't even. Yeah. Yeah. And so was there then from that experience, was there this element of perfectionism that came out of that needing to be perfect? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Without question, and I still to this day struggle with it. I mean, I still I still have to work so hard. It's like, for me, it's like, and I've, you know, I've become much more aware of it as I've gotten older, but there were so many years where I was so unaware that that was the underlying belief system that I had and that I held up to, you know, that I held myself against. Um, and it deeply affected me in really bad ways, really negative ways, especially because I ended up becoming an actress for years, I was an actress. And so, you know, you take the upbringing that I had and the conditioning that I was immersed in, and then you throw in, okay, now I'm going to be an actress and go out there in that, in that industry where you're just, you've got a magnifying glass on you and they're looking at everything and your hair's a little dry. You got to get that smooth and maybe lose five pounds. You've got, because you're fair skinned, you know, the camera adds 10 pounds on fair skinned girls. So, you know, you have to 
oh yeah, all of that, you know, Um, you might have to just, you know, watch what you eat. And then you go to theater school and you work so hard to get into the theater school program. They only accept 16 kids out of 100 that try out and I got in and oh my God, that's amazing. How awesome. I must be it. I must really have it. And then you go into the audition process. But in order to get in, well, in my experience, they tore me down. And one of the first things one of the teachers did I don't even, I'm not going to say her name because I don't want to do that to her, but she was awful. So she whispered in the girl that I was working with in a scene, whispered in her ear and, and said something. And then in front of all these kids that I was auditioning in front of, the girl screamed out every time I would talk to her, she made this girl say this line to me, which was, why do you sound like Minnie Mouse? Stop sounding like Minnie Mouse. So yeah, really bizarre, right? What does that have to do with me being an actress? My, my voice isn't good enough now. So I'm, now I'm not perfect. You know, now I'm not only my now hyper-focused on my looks, but now I'm focused on how I sound. So yeah, this whole perfectionism thing you're t- you were saying, I had that ingrained in me already. And then, you know, you throw in these other external things like theater school and acting and agents and auditions and trauma from a surgery that I had at 20 um yeah it was a recipe for disaster it was absolutely a recipe for disaster so it was no wonder looking back why everything happened the way it happened and why I am where I am because it was all leading up to that it was just Mm. (laughs) it's like a Pandora's box of yeah Yeah. beauty (laughs) yeah so tell us about the accident then that you had when you were 20 yeah yeah so basically I wore glasses for years growing up and contact lenses. And then my second year of university. So my first year I was in just the regular theater program. And then to get into the acting program, you had to try out. I did, I got in, albeit through abuse, as you mentioned, as I mentioned before. And so I had the summer off to just go have fun. And then I would go back into my second year. So I went to Europe um, at the end of my first year of university, I was traveling with a buddy and I just noticed like my eyes were really, really dry and I couldn't put my contact lenses in. Something was up. I don't know what it was. And I was starting to get a little nervous because I was going into theater school and I knew that, well, in my mind, again, here comes the perfectionism. I was like, oh my God, I can't go to theater school and wear glasses every day. There's no way I'm going to get the right parts. There's no way they're going to take me seriously. I'm going to be like the get the geek parts. I mean, this is 2000. This isn't like hipster time where, you know, glasses are in style. This is like glasses are not in style yet. Right. So I come home and of course, I say to my parents, I'm like, guys, I need laser surgery. I need to get my eyes fixed because this is, these contacts aren't working anymore. And I'm going into theater school. And like, this is big, this is the big time. Like I, I, I gotta be like ready to go. <laughs> so this is also 2000. So laser surgery hadn't really developed as much. And I went to see a doctor and I was told and warned, you know, you're not really a candidate because you have this, that, and the other, and I'm not going to get into the details of it. And of course being 20, you know, you don't want to listen and you go to another doctor and get another opinion. And so I went and saw another doctor. And of course, I'm not going to name names. There's no point in doing that. But this doctor said, no, you're fine. I have this cutting edge laser technology and it can deal with all your issues and you'll be fine. Anyway, so I ended up going and getting the laser surgery. And I don't even know because it's actually all a blur the time because it was so traumatic. And I'm sure people that have gone through trauma of any kind, can they can't exactly say the time frame. But I had the surgery and I would say about four weeks or so or three weeks after my surgery my left eye I woke up in the middle of the night in my left eye was in searing pain I had no idea what was happening I knew that it was from the surgery obviously and I couldn't see out of my left eye and I went to the bathroom and I I slammed the light on and my left eye was all red 
and looked really bad and I couldn't really see out of it a little bit but it wasn't much and I was of course in panic so I I I didn't know what to do so I you know I slammed on my parents door I was like guys I'm blind I can't see I can't see and of course there was nothing we could really do so we waited a few hours until my eye doctor was able to see me not the surgeon but an eye doctor and um I was given just some drops and stuff. He said I had a, had a corneal abrasion in my left eye and that it would take some time to heal. He gave me some drops. He said, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. We'll maybe go see the, I don't even remember if I went back to the surgeon during that period. I did eventually go back to the surgeon because I ended up having recurrent infections and corneal abrasion-y kind of stuff. Not as bad as the first time, but I would have these flare-ups, chronic flare-ups um, in my left eye where it would just be in pain, it would be red, it would be irritated. It didn't matter how much they told me to just, oh, you just have to put a nice warm towel on it and soak it, it's the oils or whatever. You have blepharitis, you have corneal dermatitis, you have this, you have that, I don't know, they gave me all these different weird names. And so I would do that stuff, but it just wouldn't, it would just, it would flare up and it would get, it was getting progressively worse in my late 20s. So basically just to backtrack, when we talk about blame, blaming ourselves for things that happen to us and internalizing pain and being feeling guilty, I blamed myself for the corneal abrasion because I felt like I had caused it because I was in this intense acting program at the time that I had it. And I was trying really hard to please the teachers and do what they wanted me to do. And there was one activity that um, my movement teacher was, was having us do stuff with our eyes closed in the movement class. And we had to kind of like delve into our deep, dark swamps. And I had just had a surgery and I asked her if I could just kind of maybe do it on the side or take a breather or maybe not do that. But she basically said, you know, I had to do it. So I did it. And I had this one day where I was, I guess I was so angry and so not angry, but fearful and scared and trying so hard and feeling like I was failing in this movement class because I felt very conscious um, of the eye stuff. I couldn't, I felt very vulnerable. And so there's this one class where I just let out this huge guttural scream that I've never really ever uttered before. I didn't know what came out of me. It was just pain, I guess. And it was a few days later that I had the abrasion. And so in my mind as a young girl, 20 years old, I connected the abrasion to that scream and that movement class and that pressure I was under. And I blamed myself for years for causing the abrasion and the recurrent infections. And when I looked in the mirror and I saw my eyes and one looked different than the other, specifically my left eye, I felt looked different than my right eye. It looked like it lacked vibrancy and luster and it looked smaller than the other and it looked inflamed. So I was hyper self-conscious. I felt like my beauty was taken from me at 20. I felt violated. I felt like I was, yeah, I I felt like the very thing that I was, you know, holding onto so deeply, which was my beauty card. um, It was just stolen from me and I never got a chance to be beautiful. You're right at 20 when you're blooming. I was like, nope you're not blooming, you're, you're ugly now. And with all the conditioning that I'd had growing up with my family um, and what I saw around me, that that was my way to success. It just deeply scarred me and deeply traumatized me. And I truly believe in hindsight, looking back that the recurrent infections that I was having um, and the recurrent, you know, pain that I was having in that eye and the heat that I was feeling there and the 
it was absolutely 100% connected to not just the physical trauma, but the mental uh, belief systems I had. It was connected to my spirit. It was connected to the emotions I felt around that eye surgery. And so ironically, I ended up healing it myself. I personally believe with a cranial sacral technique that I do called the V-spread when I was about 33 and I was in massage school because I ended up almost having to have a surgery again to, to correct it. And I would have had a scar on my face when I was about 32, 33, no, 33. Um, and I went to a top surgeon at Sinai in Toronto, great guy, he was wonderful, I love him. He helped me a little bit, he cleaned it out, but he said, if this keeps happening, it keeps not going away. We, you know, worst case scenarios, we might have to do surgery and open it up. And I can't promise that it'll fix it, but you definitely will have a scar on your face. And by that point, I didn't even care anymore. I just wanted it to be over. So I had nothing left to lose. And that's when I just decided to, to do something to myself and use this technique that I was learning about, not in school, but just that I was reading about in these books. And so I just did it on myself. And that's, I mean, knock on wood, I've never had an outbreak since that wow. night that I did it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's why I, I truly believe in self-healing and these alternative modalities and... Um, like cranial sacral therapy and Reiki and self-Reiki and because it works. I mean, I've done it. That's amazing. It so, almost like it took, it took me to do it. Like no one could help me, like no doctor, no person. It was like, Lauren, you're going to have to like go face to face with the dragon yourself and, and get, get over this and heal this. And I did. <laughs> that's amazing. So was it pain that you're experiencing or was it constant infections? Yeah. Okay. So to be clear, so the first time I had the abrasion, it was pain and redness and I couldn't see out of the eye when I had the first the corneal abrasion that blinded that eye once my vision came back and things kind of went back to normal it would be okay let's say for a few months or something and then all of a sudden I would have this flare-up where I would my eye would just it would just feel like there was sand in my eye all the time you know when you go to the beach and you get yeah. sand in your eye and you're trying to like knock it out or you're wearing mascara and you feel like there's like a lash an eyelash in your eye that's sort of like what I had going on and it just wouldn't go away yeah, they would tell me to do things to, to, to help clear the, the whatever. And they would say, don't wear makeup. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go and audition and not wear mascara. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was constant. And then it would, and then it would go away. And it was almost like once I was done theater school, there was a period of calm in my mid twenties where it wasn't really around that much or from what I remember, although it was hard to remember much because I was partying so much and doing copious amounts of cocaine to try to numb the pain. But it was around, yeah, it, it started to get, I went through a period again around 26, 27, where it would flare and then it would go away and then it would flare. And then around 29, I had a bad flare and I took some antibiotics because I went to the hospital and they said, you need antibiotics. It's, it's your skin around your eyelid. Took the antibiotics and then that sent me into another spiral because it affected my digestive system and that's what started that whole journey oh yeah <laughs> yeah once you start with one thing it's kind yeah. of like just snowballs oh doesn't yeah it? oh wow it's just, that's it's just a spiral of like pain <laughs> yeah absolutely but you mentioned there that you were doing some drugs in your 20s so yeah what was that coming out of? Was it just a feeling of anxiety, perfectionism? What were the feelings around getting into that? Yeah. So around the end of my university years, I was still in them, but like my second last year, 
you know, I had some friends at Western. Um, I listen, like those were the days it was like, I don't know, we were going to clubs, we were having fun, we were introduced to some drugs, <laughs> we were introduced to cocaine, and we tried it. And I loved it. I just loved it. Because I finally felt it was almost as if it was like, that's what I was used to. It, it, but it was a heightened, nicer version of it. It's like, I'm, that's my comfort level is being a little anxious and a little bit high. And I was starting to already use caffeine and sugar just to get me through university. You know, I was already starting to use, I wasn't using drugs, but I was using caffeine and sugar and eating. I was eating my emotions. I was eating, you know, and then when I got into the party scene in my, you know, 23, 24, 25, I would say, I just, now I don't need to eat. I can just snort some cocaine and boom, I'm ready to go. And my insecurities kind of went away for a bit and I was numb and I was high and I felt confident and I had energy. And so, yeah, cocaine was, uh, it was sort of, I guess you could say a survival tool, like just to get me through those early years of trauma that I experienced and just to kind of put it behind me. It was a way almost to be just kind of like, can I swear on these things? Is it okay to swear? Yeah. yeah. It was a way to just kind of be like, fuck you theater school, fuck you like surgery, fuck being out of control and helpless. I finally have some power back. I'm gonna do this line and I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna order a drink and I'm gonna dance and move my body and flirt with guys and go to some after hours and party with my girls. And I'm gonna get some power back. It was, again, it was me trying to sort of control my environment, me trying to cut, try to, trying to control my world because I didn't feel like I had any control or any power in my life, in my career as an actress, um, in my family. Um, I didn't feel in control of much. And I was deeply, in, I was in deep pain. I was in deep pain and, I, and the drugs, it was just a way to, to cover it, band-aid the problem. Yeah, know? yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I wanna tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And do you think you realise all of those things at that time? You don't realise these things until you look back sometimes, do you, that that's yeah. what was happening? 
Yeah. You know what, what I did realize is when I was, when I would come down, like the, the come down was so excruciatingly painful for me so that I would always want more so that I didn't have to feel those feelings. So that's what I noticed. Cause I mean, if no, if you've never done cocaine, don't do it, but it, <laughs> the thing with it is you get the high and then you get the crash and the crash is called a crash because all those feelings you're trying to numb out and not feel you're going to start feeling heightened in a heightened sense when you start coming down. And so that's what would happen to me is I would start to feel those insecurities, those fear, those fears would come back really strong. Those, you know, feel that feeling of, Oh no, here we go. And so I would want to take another line just to avoid it. So yeah, no, I think definitely there was a part of me that absolutely, because I'm a very conscious person and I'm very, I think I've always had that, I've always had it in me, this, this feeling of being an observer. Like I'm here in my body, but I'm also sort of outside my body observing what's happening. So I definitely knew there was a part of me that knew exactly what I was doing. I just didn't care. It was just like, I was in survival mode. It didn't matter. I wasn't anywhere in that place of, I can really step back and reflect and look back and, you know, no, I was just in get me through this with some dignity, some power, whatever I was grabbing onto straws. So mm. yeah, no, I, I wasn't even a place where that was even relevant. It was just get me through, yeah. let me survive this. And, and it's just, there's no kind of self-love, self-worth. It's like in those situations, we're just trying to fill ourselves with anything, aren't we? We're trying to fill up that deep hole that we've got inside us that it's just screaming out for some sort of help, I suppose, because I know that because I've been there myself. Yeah, it's, it, it, yeah it, you look back and you're like, wow, that was, it's a full on time. What changed? How did you get out of that? Well, it, it really did take in my situation and, you know, my situation with my personality type, the only thing that would get me, I think, out of it was just exhaustion and fed upness and just surrender. Because I just wasn't willing to give up the dream. I wanted to continue being an actor, even though everything in the universe was telling me not to, whether it was my lifestyle, partying, um, just to get through, not being prepared for my auditions, being hungover, totally sabotaging my talent, not feeling pretty enough, not feeling talented enough, not feeling smart enough, not feeling whatever enough, but still like in denial of that and just like going, yeah, but I can do this. If I just push through, if I just keep controlling, if I keep, you know, I don't know, what I was thinking, honestly, I was in my twenties, you're crazy in your twenties, but it really did take the car accident at 30. That was the thing that turned it all around for me. That was the thing that was like, okay, Lauren, if this is what it takes to get you to wake up and start taking care of yourself, then fine. We're going to manifest a car accident because nothing else would have taken me down. Nothing, not even the teacher that I went to. So I, um, so I'll just lead you up to the car accident and then like how it all kind of fell apart. Cause I was actually just writing my first blog podcast thing and it came up anyway. So I'm like, Oh, it's fresh in my head. And so basically I went on the doxycycline. I couldn't go to the bathroom. My digestion was all messed up now from all of those years of the infections with my eye. I started to really just, okay, I'm going to slow down with the partying. I'm going to take some, take care of myself. I did a series of colonics. I cut out wheat, dairy, gluten, caffeine, sugar, you know, I started juicing and just taking care of myself um, better and taking a lot of probiotics. And I started to see my body get back into a 
place of balance. And I started to really see that, hey, just as much as I can sabotage myself and do mean things to myself and, you know, reap the rewards of that, <laughs> I can also do good things for my body and reap the rewards of that. And so I started to kind of get on the, you know, the health bandwagon and I was feeling momentum and I was about 28 or 29 and I was taking uh, acting classes that were feeling a little bit more empowered. I was, I was in a, 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 I would say from like 27 to 30, I was in this kind of halo of like a golden age of maybe I can do this. I'm taking better care of myself. I'm not partying as much anymore. I'm juicing, I'm doing colonics. Um, I still smoke, but not as much. I've quit a couple times, like that kind of stuff. And it was right around, I just turned 30 and I was producing and starring in a play. And it was two days before my show, my opening of my show. And you'd think that, you know, the universe would let me at least do my show before <laughs> threw a real curveball at me. But I guess, you know, there was still a part of me. And I know looking back in retrospect, like, yes, there was still a part of me that was still, even though I was getting healthier, I was still kind of obsessive with my body and my looks. And I was still deeply insecure. And I was writing a script at the time. I was writing a screenplay about my story. I mean, I don't want to bore you to tears here. I, I, I'll just get to the point in a nutshell. So there was a lot of stuff happening between 27 and 30. And I was writing, I was in a really huge creative space where I was just, it was a golden age for me. I was really breaking through. But underneath that, in terms of everybody looking at me, they would say, oh my God, Lauren, you're just thriving right now. You've just landed this amazing agent who's like killer, like the best agent in Toronto. You're writing a screenplay. You're taking this great acting course. You're producing and starring in a play. You're going to try and get an agent in LA and a voice agent because actually the voice, even though it was this thing that they made fun of when I was little, it was actually the thing when I got out of theater school that I did really well with. I did a lot of voiceover stuff. So, you know, from the outside in, I bought a house with, of course, the help of other people. So it wasn't just me. So from the outside looking in, my life looked great. But underneath that, there was still this little girl, this 20-year-old, this 16-year-old, this 13-year-old who still felt so inadequate and still felt so fucked up and was still trying to maneuver and control and push and not let let the universe just guide her she was still needing and holding on so hard and I was racing home on my bicycle this was two days before my show I had just been in Kensington Market getting peanut butter and stuff and Smarties and stuff just we were rehearsing so I was bringing some snacks to my house because we were all rehearsing at my house and I was on my bicycle I was two seconds from my house and I was so happy I was listening to this new band that I love Beach House and I was on my bike and I wasn't paying attention I was unaware of my surroundings because I was so hyper focused on getting home and getting into my audition and getting the agent and getting this that I just lost track of the present moment and where I was in space and time and I was swerving and I literally collided into a car and ping-ponged off the car bounced off the pavement splattered my peanut butter which I thought was my guts like all over the pavement and the first thing, of course, that I said, even though a car hit me, <laughs> was, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so oh. sorry. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I was, I was still apologizing. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. And it's still like, I'm so sorry that that happened. Are, are, are you okay? Like, it wasn't like, you're the one on the ground. The ambulance is coming to get you and put you on a stretcher. And you're in, I'm like, oh my God, I have to put on a show in two days. Am I, I thought I, I wasn't sure if I was dead or alive. I'm like, am I okay? Like, I have to put on a play. I've got things to do. Like, I gotta go, go, go. Like, w- this is not, this is very inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, Lauren, <laughs> slow the fuck down. But like, no, nothing would slow me down. So, you know, I, of course I broke my scaphoid bone. I think I chipped my elbow. I had a cast on for eight weeks. I was limping. I could barely move the side of my body. I couldn't go to the bathroom again. So all that progress I had made with my cleansing and my colonics was out the window. And I was like hobbling like a deer in the headlights, like completely in shock. But of course, you know, me being me, you know, it's just like, I got a play. I produced it. I got a star in it. The show must go on. Let's go. And I did the play and actually the play did turn out okay, even though I was hobbling around and I was just really not all there. It did do okay. And then of course you would think after the play was over, you would think that I would rest and take care of myself and maybe go to physio or go get some massages or just, you know, maybe just rest, like just sleep. And, you know, like an animal does when they're wounded, they go in a cave and they like lick their wounds. I didn't, I was like, oh, well, there's no time for that. And I, hurled myself into an acting intensive with a teacher who I will not name, who basically uh, took my trauma and what she saw as my vulnerabilities and my insecurities. And I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but she basically, if nothing else had stopped me, the car accident, you know, the theater school, the auditions, the drugs, the corneal abrasion, the insecurities, my upbringing, whatever, that sure did, that did it. I I was so depleted by that point and so run down and exhausted. And she took my biggest insecurity, which was my eye. And she basically, among many other sort of weird manipulative things she did, she basically stood me up in front of my peers, about 30 other students that were in this acting class and decided to basically pick and poke at me until she figured out what it was. And then she basically said in front of the class, something that I'm not going to say, but basically she went right into the heart of the wound and took a knife and stabbed it. And I collapsed on the floor. And then she said, get back up. You're not going to collapse. Get back up. It was like, you know, tough love, get up, you know, and made me, uh, you know, humiliated me basically in front of everybody. And so after that, I did a few more classes with her. Cause that's, that's how, well, that's the kind of lack of love I guess I had for myself. And then after that, I was done and I never acted again. I stopped, I quit acting and I decided to take another path. And that was what led me on to the next chapter of my life, which was the healing path. And then stories, I could go on and on, but I'll just leave it at that for now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I just, I just stopped. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. Oh, wow. And then this person comes along at the end and just sticks the knife in. It's just Yeah, right in the wound. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of happens, doesn't it, when we're when we really don't give a shit about ourselves, you know? Like it seems to it just ends up happening to us because I don't know, I think people can just see that we're so oh, victim it. in the end. Oh, yeah. she could see it miles away. She saw, she saw right through it. And the thing with that, that screwed me up so bad for so long after that was that 
it was so manipulative because she would look me in the eyes and say, you're brilliant, you're talented, you've got like that kind of talent that you, I can't teach. But then in the, the next breath, she would say something so hurtful and so insulting and so humiliating that after that, I was just, I was done. I was like, I went to LA to try and get this agent, but I didn't even care. Like I didn't even end up meeting up with them. And I ended up just walking through the hills of like California and met someone just trailed to San Francisco. And, and then it's just, it, the dream just died. It just was, it was over for me. And honestly, for years after that, I wondered, and I don't even still have the answer. I don't even know. And I, that's why I try not to judge as things being good or bad. They're just, they just are. Was she a gift to me in some way? I, I, I truly do believe in some weird kind of way she was a gift, even though I don't think she was, I don't think she meant it to be a gift because mm -hmm. I just think what her intentions were, were, were cruel. I think that that's really cruel what she did and I would never wish that on anyone else. But in some ways it knocked, it knocked me down in a way that I, I had no choice but to re-examine my life and where I was at and what I was doing and decide, okay, is this something I want to keep doing to myself? Or do I, do I want to keep abusing myself? Or do I want to take a different path? And that was the thing that the car accident combined with her and those classes, it was just like a perfect storm yeah. of just, I'm going to, I'm going to change my story now and do something different. Yeah. And I don't regret it. I really don't. I don't at all. Yeah. I think it's just sometimes it's you just get punched in the face so many times over and over and over don't you and then you just go actually maybe this is the wrong way <laughs> yeah. I actually meant to go do something else and I've noticed it in my own life sometimes I just think it's like it just doesn't work when you're going down the wrong path and mm -hmm. you have to get to a point where you say okay what am I actually meant to be doing so you went and yeah. studied some different things in in health what do you mm -hmm. think are the things that have really helped you in that healing journey yeah well one of the things that helped me was just going with something that felt right to me and just trusting my own instinct with that so and not pushing and letting life happen and not trying to control it so after that experience with the teacher and with the car accident I was actually I got into a master's program for drama therapy I'm like well you know what I'm not going to be an actor because that's just that business sucks but I think maybe I've got a gift with using my education and my knowledge of acting and therapy as a way to heal myself and heal others in a wholesome, nice, kind way. And so I got into the program again, yay, you know, prestigious. I got into a master's program in drama therapy. But of course, before I was gonna go and do that, I decided I was gonna go to Gainesville, Florida because there was a body therapy called myofascial release specific for people that had trouble getting pregnant, people that had been in accidents, people that had bowel obstructions and I had digestive issues and my periods after the accident were like non-existent. I was kind of concerned even though I wasn't having a baby at the time or trying to have a baby. I was like, maybe I won't get pregnant now. So maybe I should look into this. So I went to Gainesville to get this therapy done and I was only supposed to go for a week and I ended up staying a year because I couldn't leave the place. I just couldn't leave it. And oh. I didn't go to San Francisco. I didn't do a master's. I didn't do what I should do. I followed my heart. And for the first time in my life, I followed my instinct. I followed my heart. My heart wanted to heal. My heart wanted to rest. And my heart wanted Gainesville. And I just stayed there. And I ended up doing a massage course, six-month massage course. 
no idea what it was going to give me, whether I was going to actually become a massage therapist. I just knew that I could not leave that place until I felt stronger and he, and, and at least more healed than I was at that moment in time. So that led me on that journey. So that was probably the, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And then of course the second one was meeting my husband and marrying him and going back to school in Toronto and becoming a legal because I was in the States. So I couldn't use, I couldn't get my, bring my license over to Canada. I had to go back to school in Canada. So I lived in BC for a year and then I came back to Toronto. My dad was sick at the time with lung cancer. He's okay now, God bless. But um, I came home. I had to sort of, I had to eventually face home and face all the damage that was there and heal it, you know, recognize it, see it. Not, it's not such a demon. It's okay. And when I came home only for a couple of weeks, even it was just a few weeks, I met my, my future husband just through a mutual friend at a party, like at a bar that, cause the irony is he, he loves fish. He's a big, big fish head. They're a band. It's, it's, I can't explain it, but they, um, where they were performing in Toronto and it got canceled because there was this huge rainstorm and they hadn't canceled a show in 20 years. So the first show in 20 years that they canceled was in Toronto and everybody ended up at a, at a pub that we're supposed to go to that show. And I ended up bumping into some people I knew and they knew this guy. I didn't know, I'd never met him. And I met him and I had chemistry with him and I face on Facebook, I added him and I'm like, we should go for a drink sometime and, or to go for dinner and hang out. And you know, there, that's how it started. And I came back home, I moved back home to Toronto and went back to school and met him and got pregnant and got married and had two boys and got a house and, now I'm all like boring and normal. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because you you just did that for yourself when you just decided to follow your heart. Yeah. How would you explain to somebody how they can do that? I mean, what do you change about yourself from being so perfectionist, so driven in that way and then really following your heart? How do you explain that to somebody? You know, I just hope, like, I guess the reason I do what I do is that's the thing. I want to help people. I want to lead people down a a healing path, whatever that is for them. I I don't wish the pain that I went through on anybody. I I would hope that people would be able to make those decisions without going through what I went through. But if by chance people are going through that and they're listening to this and they hear what I'm saying and they're resonating with it, I would say, you know, Stop doing what you think you should be doing or what maybe your family has conditioned you to think you should be doing. Don't go after the diplomas and the the letters and the, I got to be a doctor because that's what my family wants for me, right? That's my thing. That's what I've always planned. Life is always changing and we can change our minds at any time. We don't have to keep going if the path feels hard and it hurts us. I kept going, you know, way longer than I needed to. Well, no, for my path, that's what was needed. I needed to go that long in order to finally be like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. But I had those inklings. I had those messages in my life, kind of like, this isn't for you. This is hurting you. This makes you feel bad about yourself. These people are mean. Like this industry is shitty. Like this isn't you, but I, I ignored it. I, I dumb, I numbed it. I, I try to overcome it. You shouldn't have to try to overcome things. You should just feel good. Like it should just be natural. And 
if people in your life are making you feel like shit, if your career is making you feel like shit, don't do it. And don't be around those people that are mean. Go find your tribe, go find your people. The funny thing is, is that I always thought I was gonna be an actress ever since I was a little girl. And that was my dream for a long, long time. And now being in this profession, which is being a massage therapist, being a body worker, doing Reiki, doing cranial, helping people, it feels so much more natural for me to be in this career. And I've, I've been in it now for, you know, off and on because I had kids and everything for 10 years. But if someone were to have said to me when I was 16, 20, 22, you're going to end up being like a massage therapist and you're going to love it. I would have been like, yeah, right. Are you crazy? That sounds so not glamorous. No, no, no. I get the massages. I don't give the massages. You know, I once went to my dad, like a few years before I actually did the massage therapy. And I'm like, dad, I think on the side, while I do my acting, I'll just, I'll give massages. Maybe I'll just go to massage school and get a massage license. And he was just like, what? Cause it didn't even occur to him that his daughter would want to do something like that, or that that was her path. Like, no, she gets massages. She doesn't give massages. So, okay. Okay. Here's the kernel of what I'm trying to get at is get out of your own way. You know, like you think in your mind, you have these beliefs that you're supposed to be something or that you're destined for a certain life or lifestyle or whatever it is that that's, it's, it's predestined for you when there could be something out there that you completely have no idea is for you. And it, it can completely change your life and radically heal you in ways that you could never have imagined for yourself. We actually think so small sometimes. We just have this tunnel vision of what we think our life is supposed to look like. When, when we lift the veil, there's this whole other world and it's, it's overwhelming, but in a really good way. It's really exciting. And don't limit and don't play small and don't limit your ideas of who you think you are because who you really are is infinite and divine and endless. And you're, you can be good at many things, not just one thing. So your life isn't over just because your career ends or you lose your job or you get sick or you have an accident or you have a trauma. It's just beginning. It's just yeah. a different chapter. So mm -hmm. just roll with it. Yeah, I would say just roll with it and just flow with it and don't try to fight the stream. Just go where it wants to take you. When I went where the stream wanted to take me, which was to Gainesville, and I just let, I surrendered to the flow. And I just said, okay, my God, I'm in your hands. Show me the light. And when I did that, and I just put my faith in something greater than myself, my life opened up for me in ways and, and healed in ways I could never have planned had I been the maestro the whole time. Yeah, yeah, I love all of that. It's such good advice and it's so beautiful. It's also beautiful. You have two beautiful boys. Yeah. What gifts are you giving to them for their childhood that you think are, are really important things? Yeah. Well, I just want them to be kids. You know, I want them to have their innocence. I want them to enjoy their lives and be themselves. I don't want to put any sort of conditions on them or belief systems on them. I want them to stay pure and I want them to be authentic. And I want to just encourage that. I want to give them choices. I don't want them to feel like they're living their life for me. I don't want them to feel like they have to impress or please me. I want them to be themselves in whatever form that takes. And so, you know, just, and, and my husband and I, 
we both want that. And that's, that's the thing that binds us together is we want to give our kids some of the things that we didn't have growing up. We want them to have their childhoods and their authenticity and just be kids and have fun and figure it out as they go and just support them, whatever it is, just support them and love them and give them all that love, unconditional love. Yeah. Out of all of it, you know, honestly, like my career is so important to me and helping others is so important to me. But honestly, my biggest accomplishment in my mind will be like when my kids, my boys grow up and they look me in the eyes and I see love. I just see love. That will be the biggest accomplishment. I absolutely love that. That's absolutely perfect. Lauren, I know you're on Instagram sharing your healing journey and you're a registered massage therapist. Tell us about how we can connect with you and anything you'd like to share with us about what you're offering. Yeah, so I'm actually I'm building a website right now because I realized I probably should do that. <laughs> a lot of it's just been word of mouth. People can obviously message me directly on Instagram if they want to book an appointment. I work part-time at a clinic and I work part-time at home. The options are they can either see me at the clinic two days a week, Wednesdays and Fridays I'm at the clinic and Tuesdays and Thursdays I'm at home. I'm trying to give myself one day off a week just to get stuff done like groceries and be a mom <laughs> and fit in my hours. Again, this is about being you know, a mom that I want, I want to be a mom that picks up my kids after school and takes them. So trying to work it all in, but I am building a website and people can, once the website is, it's almost done, people can request a conversation to book an appointment or whatever. But I guess for now, just direct message me on Instagram and then I can give them my information from there. And then hopefully soon my website will be connected to Instagram and people can click on it and get all the information they need through my website. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll put all those details in the show notes so people can connect with you easily. Lauren, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Your story is so important to hear. It's so beautiful. Everything that you've said today, I've just really loved connecting with you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm so honored to be a guest. I really am. Thank you, Dawn. Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.